Hey, I'm Rachel. A few years ago, I stepped away from my religious background. I had a lot of anger and a lot to say about evangelicalism and all the shitty parts of it. So I started a podcast to work through it and to feel less alone. A year into it, I asked my cousin-in-law to join the journey. And I said yes. I'm Molly, co-host of the show. Turns out we had a lot more in common than just being in the same family. We were both raised in evangelical house churches in the 90s and 2000s. Talk about culty. We were homeschooled, culty, and we both left religion behind about eight years ago. So now we get together every other week and talk about the nitty gritty that happens when you leave religion. Everything from how to set healthy boundaries with religious family members, theology, hell, heaven, Paul, and how to recognize and heal from religious trauma. This podcast is our healing process, and we're hopeful that sharing our stories, other people's stories, and what we learn along the way may help others heal too. Religion leaves a mark on everyone it touches. Sometimes that mark isn't always positive. Cheers to Leaving is the perfect podcast for anyone who's questioning their faith or looking to connect with others who have been there. You can find our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So grab a drink and join us as we say, cheers to leaving. Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm super excited to be speaking today with David Moore. So welcome, David, to MindShift Podcast. Great to be here, Clint. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited because I wanted to get the introduction out of the way because we have a mutual friend who introduced, I guess, you to me or me to you, I don't know, but Janice Selby is a mutual friend, one of my favorite Canadians. So thank you, big thank you to Janice for putting you and I together. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, her work's amazing. Yes, I love Janice. I've been on her court, uh, I think it was 2020 and 2022, maybe it was 2021, 2022. I've done some presentations on that conference on religious trauma. In fact, we were in Vancouver the year that it was supposed to be the first one, but then COVID hit and it all got canceled. So it all went away. That was, I guess that would have been 2020. So yeah, we we go back a long way. We actually- Here we, just, here we all were deconstructing and then COVID hit. And yeah. now, then we were really deconstructing. It's like, okay, it just light, lit a fire to that whole process. Yeah, it did. And weirdly, you know, I'm sure we can talk about this, but as you, I'm sure you'll know, I mean, the whole COVID pandemic, that just fast-tracked all the conspiracy theories, the QAnon yeah. pandemic. So on a- Literally and culturally, it all, it all oh, came out of the woodwork right then. Everything changed, yeah. I wrote a paper for the Public Eye Journal. It was all about how the pandemic changed the face of Christian homeschooling because they saw it as a great means to recruit non-Christians because they said, hey, you you need to homeschool your kids because the schools are closed. We've got all the curriculum. Here you go. Only to real, they didn't realize there was this huge dominionist Christian nationalist piece attached to it. So that's another fascinating angle. I'm sure we could get into. Yeah, there was an agenda. And these people didn't know what they were buying. They were just thinking, oh, well, someone's just helpfully prepared all this curriculum, these wonderful people, and I'll just buy it and I'll teach my kids at home. 
Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, what's all this dominion theology? <laughs> what? So yeah, that's a whole nother piece, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So you're coming from Lake Drive Books. So what's your sort of backstory? Are you, uh, you said you're a publisher, an editor, you do things in, in terms of like ex-evangelical books and that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, I I would say that I'm the owner and publisher of Lake Drive Books. Um, I also run a literary agenting business. Sounds like too much, but for me, it's mm -hmm. not. Um, in this era of being a solopreneur and finding different revenue streams and uh, exercising your skill set in different ways, uh, it definitely works for me. In fact, they play off of each other quite nicely, being a literary agent, someone who helps sh um, shepherd authors to publishers, but also someone who publishes authors. And I, I learned from both sides of that. Um, I've been in the publishing business almost 30 years. Mm. Um, I didn't plan on it. It's it's often called the accidental profession. Um, and I hope, you know, how many of us are in a profession we planned on exactly? Or <laughs> makes us money is not the thing we thought it would be. It's true. Yeah. I was a pastor and we've done all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 In fact, I thought I was going to be a psychotherapist uh, early in the going. I was a psych major in college and, but I couldn't get the religion, the religious studies bug out of me. And I wound up at a school where I did eventually get a PhD in religion and psychology, uh, Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, it was more of a social science of religion, um, not a not a, a pastoral theology kind of psychology and religion degree. Mm -hmm. Although that that was there, that was that was a component of it. But it was really more how do you look at religion objectively? There are uh, probably the, the the biggest default stance on this is sociology religion. You probably mm -hmm. see statistics research being done on the nuns, for example. Um, on the political attitudes of evangelicals, um, those are done by sociologists of religion. For me, it's it's I was more trained to look at the role of faith and how it interacts with our lives developmentally, psychologically, culturally. Um, mm -hmm. It was very formative time for me. It was very very much a liberal theology education in a way. I put it that way because some people know what that phrase means, but it 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 you know it was it was really much more like uh, like socially progressive. Uh, there was a big focus on race, class, and gender, which was you know, something fresh for a 24-year-old 20, mm -hmm. white guy who just wanted to study psych and religion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, 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 you know, I, I read some amazing books. I was introduced to some amazing authors. A good education can really make an impact on you, and it, and it sure did on me. I wrote a dissertation on the, uh, you know, what happens when you lose your faith, Mm. And how do you find your way forward? Um, I used to Big say it's more like how do you find your way back, but I, I don't worry so much about the finding your way back part. It's more like how do you find your way forward? Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I looked at it from uh, the basic idea, the theory that I chose was, let, well, let's look at mourning theory. How do we mourn a loss in our lives? And well, let's let's talk about losing something like a religion. Well, it's one thing to lose somebody that you, you, you've loved all your life, for example, like a parent or a spouse, but how, how do you actually mourn the loss of religious symbols, religious community? I mean, that stuff is, it, it, it is deep in your psych, psych, psychology. Oh, yeah. It's huge. Um, and it's, it's like trying to mourn something that you can't, that's not as tangible. So it takes almost longer. If, if you, if you wonder why people talk about 
their former religious lives incessantly? Well, it's because it's impossible. It's near impossible to move on from a emotional, psychological point of view, but it is possible. It, mm-hmm. But it's, there's just so much to cover. You have no idea how much you were conditioned, you know. And you were just saying that earlier when when we were before this call. How you know you're still ten years later, you you know it still very much shapes. Who oh, absolutely. So that's my that's my sort of educational background. Um, but it was hard to find a, a job in academia uh, for the kind of training I had, and it wasn't it wasn't giving me licensure to be a psychotherapist necessarily, and it wasn't the most marketable degree from a religious studies point of view, where, which is a field dominated more by um, you know. Asian religious studies, sociology of religion, which I mentioned earlier, women's studies, African American mm-hmm. studies. Um, you know, it's a very niche thing, isn't it? Yeah, Christianity as well, which I didn't want to outright be a Christian religious studies person. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. different. Um, so I wound up in book publishing. I've been in it for thirty years. I've I've worked for a couple of major publishing brands. One is Guidepost Magazine, which is something a lot of people's grandmothers know about. Oh yeah. Um, I remember reading it when I was a kid. All true inspirational stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually run out in Manhattan, New York City. Um, they had a book division, and what my job working for the book division was was to take the names from the large mailing lists that their magazine generated and send them uh, advertisements through the mail, direct mail, direct advertising, saying, "Hey, we like this book. We think you'll like it too." And we sold a lot of books that way. Um, mm-hmm. And that really got before email and all that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, before email, right. Yeah, direct mail is kind of their main operand, modus operandi. They send these six by nine mailings that have these big colorful brochures in them. Um, and they still haven't figured out how to really online sell books like Amazon does, which has affected their business as it's affected all of our business. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I learned a lot about the different, you know, the, the, the wide field of more religious publishing, but also the broader market publishing, the big five in New York City in particular. Um, those like Random House and Harper and Simon Schuster and McMillan and so on. I learned about the whole field of publishing because that job also let me like license books from other publishers as well as create them and then repackage them for um for that audience. Mm-hmm. After about 17 years of that, commuting into New York City from New Jersey, where I live with my wife and daughters, um, I was asked to be the publisher at Zondervan Books. Ooh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a yeah, big it's, name. It's, it's pretty much the best known evangelical publishing company, book publishing brand. There's other. There's there's arguably one other company that might be seen as bigger uh, from a revenue point of view, but Zondervan is probably the one that's most recognizable. Um, the the story. Of, so so with that, I. I went from being kind of like a book buyer and repackager and market tester. We I wrote a lot of copy for them and for guideposts when I was there, to being a publisher with uh, some big Christian celebrity cell phone mm-hmm. numbers suddenly in, in my hip pocket, <laughs> and uh, uh, their their agents. And I dealt with the big the big advance, hundreds of thousands of dollars of advance offers for certain books, maybe even a million at times, depending on the book. Um, it was big, big business. Big, I can imagine distribution, big staff, big infrastructure. Um, it's a massive lots company, of, lots and lots of money, lots and lots of capitalism too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, good critical so, company. Zondervan was owned by Harper Collins uh, since the 1980s, and everybody knows that. So one of the big, one of the big five publishers. 
And then they bought the other really big publisher, Thomas Nelson, the other big evangelical publisher, and this one mm -hmm. located in Nashville. And eventually my job just got consolidated, like a lot of jobs in book publishing where publishers are buying each other up. And my my position as publisher of Zondervan got moved to Nashville, believe it or not, which is kind of surprising to hear for people who live in the Midwest and Grand Rapids and they're into that, you know, that 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 Zondervan vibe. Well, yeah. Um so I'm out on my own now and I and I do uh like I said, literary agenting. I've got a, a select stable of authors that I shepherd over to publishers. Um and uh and then I have started my own publishing just so that I can you know, we really need more options to resource people who have um, shifted away from the religious upbringing that, that they had. Um, where do they go? How, what, what kinds of information and insights do they need? Um, how, how do you still sort of nurture that spiritual side of yourself without, without the same kind of dogma? But really, a lot of it is just processing. You know, how do we understand what's happened to us? Um, these things just don't change overnight. And, um, you know, there's a lot of really important stories to tell, um, just so that sure. we can hold ourselves accountable and be aware of, you know, the state of religion as it is in the United States. That's where I am. Um, and you're in, you're in the UK, right? Yeah. We're in Northwest of England, um, North Wales area. Nice. I've been here for about 18 years. Well, yeah, going back to something you said, you talked about your sort of metaphor was mourning a loss, you know, leaving your faith behind, leaving your religion behind. And speaking of our friend Janice, her, her metaphor is a divorce. She calls it divorcing religion. And that's a very similar kind of concept, right. isn't it? It does feel like you've gone through a very messy and painful divorce, especially if you're the child watching your parents go through all this and you're left with all the, the fallout of it, the emotional baggage and the loss of everything. And like you said, you've got to then process it all but were you raised in sort of evangelical Christianity? Were you sound like you were from the New Jersey area originally? We raised in church and all that from day one. Yeah, I was. I was a pastor's kid. Um, actually, lived in Southern California growing up. Born born in Indiana, where my dad was going to a conservative Christian college, or rather seminary. It wasn't Wheaton, was it? No, no. Well, that's in Illinois. There's a small denomination called Grace Brethren Church, and there's a seminary called Grace Seminary in right. Southern Indiana. Uh, do I have that right? I think so. Or yeah, somewhere around there. <laughs> yeah, it's in the Midwest. It's history for me personally. <laughs> yeah. Like Long time ago. Yeah. Um, but, and um, Southern California, Northern Virginia, and, and New Jersey. Um, you bounced I mean, around a fair bit. Yeah. I mean, I would just say that we all kind of get different doses of it. Mm-hmm. Um, some, I, I've met enough people now to know I got a relatively mild dose, even though it was still very, very all-encompassing, defined very much who I am. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I think there's a tendency, and I've seen evidence of this, for people to think that those who are raised in um, a high-commitment, all-encompassing evangelical background, and, and, you know, and how do you define that? Well, maybe, you know, you listen to Christian radio and Christian music all the time, and you went to church a whole bunch of times a week, and you read the Bible, you know, constantly. Which is <laughs> not an exaggeration for yeah, that's pretty much what I did. Yeah, and and I I have my dose of that as well, my involvement of that as well with that. Um, and I, I would there, there's some that tend to say that 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 is like an extreme experience. You know, the focus on the evangelical focus on 
you know, high, high prioritizing of scripture to define everything. Mm-hmm. Um, the belief in the bodily resurrection of Christ and being the only way, the exclusivity to to salvation, however that's defined. Um, and and the other the other aspects to evangelicalism, but I I find that 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 attitude is far more pervasive, um, almost in a folk religion way, uh, throughout different denominations, mainline as well as evangelical, mm. uh, non-denominational as well as denominational. There's still this sort of supernatural. Let's just put talk about God and it's like a, a, a supernatural belief in a God is very much shaped by our social location in the United States. And you might say, you know, well, it's different here or different there, or, you know, there's Lutherans and then there's, there's Methodists and there's Episcopalians and there's, yeah, Baptists, Baptists. you could, yeah, so many different denominations. Baptists, yeah, but there's, there's, they're far more alike than, than people want to admit. Mm. And, um, I don't know, I can get going on this stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's the sociological aspect of it, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny because if you were raised in a different country, there's a good chance you're probably going to adopt the dominant religion of that country. You know, if you're raised in India, you're going to be a Hindu or a, a Muslim. Or if you're raised in China, you're probably going to be a Buddhist or something like that. You know, here we are, like you said, raised in America. Both of us, we were raised in good Christian families, so we became Christian. What's the chances of that? You know, it's the sociological aspect, isn't it? We tend to adopt the dominant religion of our community, our our nation, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you were lucky in that sense that you didn't, you weren't like in a fundamentalist, like independent fundamental Baptist or anything like that. Right. Right. Uh, it didn't necessarily shape the kind of the clothes I had to wear. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The strict controls. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say even in my own home life that we were highly observant in terms of like doing devotionals after dinner right. or before dinner every day. Um, but 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 it, there was there was some intriguing aspects to it that, yeah. that I realized hey not everybody was raised this way and I, I you know once I once I was in the larger world and one of my best friends growing up in high school was Jewish it's like okay this is interesting you weren't raised the way you're like you're yeah. and then I married, different. I, I married someone who was raised Catholic and it's like it's a That's totally different. different world a totally different <laughs> yeah. language how could it how could these different worlds even exist somehow we're both Christians but it's not the same is it yeah yeah. And Jews are ostensibly worshiping the same God as Christians, they would say, but it's yeah. so different, isn't it? It's yeah, just all of the, all the attitudes and the value systems, um, you know, there, there, there can be quite a quite a bit of difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just absolutely. just from a Catholic point of view, you know, the, the way Protestants and evangelicals in particular make the Bible such a priority for her, it was more about liturgy. And, mm-hmm. you know, to this day, she's like remarking to me how there's extra books in the Catholic Bible versus the Protestant Bible. And she's been used to the Protestant Bible in more recent times. Right. And she's forgotten that, yeah. oh yeah, that's apocryphal literature. I want to read that. Why is that in there? You know? How come that's not the evangelical Bible? Yeah. Wait a minute. to the evangelical Bible as the Bible Bible. I'm like, but that's not necessarily <laughs> true. That's what evangelicals want you to think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole nother debate, isn't it? Well, and then it's interesting, You like we're talking about sociology, if you compare fundamentalist Islam, Judaism, and Christianity at their core, they're very, very similar. You know, mm-hmm. So that's another element of this thing, isn't that? What, these Abrahamic religions are deeply patriarchal. 
and the way they treat their followers is almost remarkably consistent across those three religions. So, you know, it's it's you think, oh, we're di- we're different than the, the Muslims and the the Jews, but yeah. not really. When you if you push it to the logical conclusion, it's very similar, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, especially when you look at the political pull mm-hmm. of these things. You know, yeah, a a, a a fundamentalist Muslim does not look very different from a fundamentalist Christian. That's true. Um, in terms of their ethics, the way they treat people, treat women, right? Yeah. Right. Well, you're sitting in America. Are you still in the New Jersey area? Did you say? Is that where you're living with, currently? With my with my publishing job, I moved to Grand Rapids. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Yeah. So what, you're sitting in the middle of this context. What are you seeing from the sort of Trump evangelical Christian right thing? Because that's something I've done a lot of research and talking to, to other people about. What does that do to you? Did that did that have any effect on your deconstruction, or was it a completely different element of sort of theological thing or your relationship with the church? How did it come about? Um, you know, I I would say that definitely, like most people, it accelerated my own journey mm-hmm. uh, when I saw just how, um, just how surprised I was that. You know, a, a culture that raised me to uh, love others as I would want to be loved, uh, to not judge unless I want to be judged, um, to how they were, how they've so easily set aside their values to vote for someone who, on paper, is promising them the kinds of uh, cultural victories that they want out of politics. Uh, rather than actual policies of, you know, governance, mm-hmm. um, and that 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 was really disillusioning for me, like everyone else. I would say though, for me, um, I think it's the the expansion and changing attitudes toward the queer community in the culture at large that also had its effect on me. That I woke up more as well. I, I think I, I've always been affirming, but I realized I worked for an employer who really wasn't. Right. From a, from a practical standpoint, even though there was no official statement about it. Um, and then, you know, it came to a point where um, there was a retired pastor in the church, the evangelical church my wife and I were attending, and his son asked to officiate at his son's ex, uh, same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. And the denomination kicked this guy out. Wow. And they asked him not to preach in their churches anymore. He was banned, huh? His his life, his blood, sweat, and tears to this denomination and to the local church. And he's one of these older people that you just, you you get to know them a little bit. You're like, boy, I would love to just spend more time with this person. You know, Mm -hmm. this is a fine, gentle human being, smart, articulate, um, you know, not perfect, but that's how all of us humans are. Mm-hmm. And to see that happen and to see someone like in their well into their 70s, see he and his wife be annoyed, if not downright angry and indignant in a time of your life where you're supposed to be looking back and yeah, giving flexing. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. got kicked to the curb for sure. Yeah. And to be, yeah. And at that time in your life to be kicked to the curb, wow. I just thought, okay, that's, this is just outright a moral wrong. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's all, and that's exactly what it is. And there, it's it's a it's a practice of bigotry, 
in what is probably a more centrist evangelical denomination, which I'll I'll leave nameless for the moment, but you know, it's not even a fundamentalist outfit. Uh, no, it wasn't even super fundamentalist, and and yet they they won't affirm same sex marriages. They're probably mm-hmm. very nervous about having a queer person lead a Sunday school class. Oh yeah, you know, right. So um, that that was just like that's enough. You know, I I, mm-hmm. I can't I can't condone this. I can't be part of it. I'm not going to try to change it from the inside. I'm going to vote with my feet, and I'm going to. Find my my own spiritual path elsewhere. I will tell you, and this even kind of gets back. What really surprised me about that experience more than anything else was I actually have a PhD in studying religion and loss of faith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this is right in there. We'll here. I was me and my wife experiencing <laughs> it all over again. That holy living it feeling of like, oh, I've given up on this community. I'm the horrible person, you know, or maybe I've thought this through wrong. Or, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, like now I don't have community. What do I do? And, mm-hmm. um, I thought I had figured it out, but I hadn't. It's a lot of work, isn't it? Well, going back to your comment about the inclusive, I remember a couple of years ago, I was in Portland visiting friends and I was chatting with a, a guy that he actually used to be my associate pastor when I was working at a church in Portland. And we were talking about that whole subject of you know, our churches in Portland. It's a little bit more of a liberal city. Are they inclusive? And he said, the thing is, he's found as he's gone from church to church, they'll say they're inclusive, meaning, but what it's disingenuous, because what they mean is, we'll welcome you if you're gay. We won't judge you. However, our secret agenda is we're going to pray for you that God will A, save you and B, make you straight, you know, so they won't discriminate against you. And in that sense, they think they're being inclusive, but it really isn't. They won't kick you out. But if you ask, like you said, to be the worship leader or to be running a Sunday school or to preach a sermon, eh, probably not. You know, so there's it's a little bit disingenuous on that level. Yeah, and those things are to to lean on Catholic and liturgical traditions. Those things, um, being able to teach, um, being able to lead worship, uh, getting married, those are sa- those are spiritual sacraments. Yes. And those churches will raise uh, someone someone who is same sex attracted or has has different different sexuality than than the accepted binary norms uh, and gender definitions. Um, they'll raise someone like that from a kid from a kid from the, you know early age, and then and then deny them those things as they mm-hmm. become adults. And that's that's just spiritually and psychologically and emotionally, that's egregious behavior. Yeah, it's abusive. When we come back in just a few minutes in the second half of this conversation with David, the former Christian publisher, we're going to get into conversion therapy, his views on Trumpism and the whole MAGA evangelical movement and more. So stay tuned for that just coming up in a few minutes. I just wanted to let you know here on the break what's coming up in the next few episodes here on the show. We've got a fantastic interview lined up for you with my very good friend Tim Sledge. He, like me, is an ex-evangelical pastor out of Texas. We had a fantastic conversation the other day about his really excellent book, Four Disturbing Questions with One Simple Answer, Breaking the Spell of Christian Belief. And I read that book just off the back of finishing my book. I'm like 99.9% finished with my book. And Tim's actually helping me edit it, and he's going to publicize it once it gets out. And I'm hoping it drops sometime, maybe October, even maybe November. It's taken a bit longer than I thought. I was hoping it was going to get out in September, but it's looking like I want to get it right before it goes out. So I'll let you know. But anyway, 
Tim and I had a good conversation about that because there's a lot of resonance between my story, getting baptized three times, growing up in the Evangelical Church of Christ. So once I read his book, I really, really wanted to chat with him. So that's coming up next. Then I had an absolutely just a, a fantastic conversation with another person I've just met, Catherine North. She's living up in Canada, and she'd written a book called Holy Heathen. She's got a, just an unbelievable story. She grew up as a missionary kid in Japan, and she was raised in this deeply fundamentalist context as a missionary kid, and all the rest of it. She's come out of the faith. We had just a fantastic conversation. So that's coming up after my chat with Tim Sledge, and then I'm still working on getting another good friend of mine, another ex-pastor, David Hayward, the naked pastor. He's been very busy sort of coming off the summer into the fall or autumn season, but we're going to line up an interview with David Hayward. I need to catch up with him. It's been a long time since I've had him on the show, so that's coming up. And then actually we've got David coming back, David Morris, that is, for our October MindShift Zoom call. We had one a couple weeks ago with Rachel and Molly from the Cheers to Leaving podcast, and that was just a great conversation with those two ladies but then we've got, as I say, David Morris coming up on the 29th of October. And then we've got Catherine North coming back in November. So I've got a couple of really good MindShift Zoom calls lined up the last couple months of the year before we take a break for the holidays. These are great benefits that you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show. In fact, thanks again to Jim and Flo. These are the authors of Holy Terror. And in fact, they're working on a Holy Terror too. So I'm hoping to get in touch with them and find out what their updated research is. But Thanks to Jim and Flo for renewing their membership of the show. So I greatly appreciate all the support we have on Patreon. So let's get on back into the second half of this chat with David Morris as we continue the confessions of a former Christian publisher. The other extreme is, of course, the conversion therapy. That's another aspect of this whole conversation, is that, that there are some denominations, some churches that will insist that okay, you could be celibate, you can have same-sex attraction, but you better not act on it. And in fact, you need to go to conversion therapy. Yeah, which is and, proven to be, a, to be, you know, damaging. Oh, yeah. It, it actually doesn't work, even though the, the sort of high-profile ones that have said, I'm straight now, and I've gotten married to a woman or a man, you know, then a few years later, <laughs> they'll come out and say, no, it, I'm still attracted to the same sex, you know, so. Right. It's true. It doesn't actually work doesn't fit the science. Yeah, it just doesn't work. But it sounds so good if you're saying, well, God couldn't have made you gay. You must have chosen to be gay. You have to be, you know, because my daughter, she's gay. uh, And we went through that whole thing when she came out because my now ex-wife, her family was quite religious. uh, And that was the thing, you know, was she abused as a child? Was that what happened? And then turned her gay, you know? Oh my. No, she was always that way. We, when she came out, we were, like, okay, we've known for years. We were just waiting for you to, you know, pick the time right. and you to tell us, but we've right. known for years, you know, it's not a shock to us at all. Right. And that's the challenge with evangelicalism and a fundamentalist conservative uh, religious stance is you're not willing to look at the facts, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Staring you in the face sometimes. Uh, you're not, you're not willing to look at humanity like a human life mm-hmm. that has that does have gender and sexual differences that don't fit into neat categories. Yeah, it's true. Well, what do you think about this whole? We kind of alluded to it. You mentioned, you know, okay, these evangelicals they voted for Trump. As I interpreted it, and I see it now, my take on it was, like you said, they set aside their 
sort of ideals to vote for this guy who on paper was the antithesis of everything they claimed to stood, stand for because he was going to help them achieve that dominion, you know, like you said, the political agenda. And in some ways, they won it. They got three Supreme Court justices appointed. They overturned Roe versus Wade. Now they're taking aim at LGBTQ rights. That's their agenda. What's your take on it now? Um, well, I, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm a super expert in this from a sociological point of view mm -hmm. or an ethics point of view or even a theology point of view. Uh, a lot of the conversation absolutely is that, uh, you know, it's, it's more of a race and class uh, conversation, more focused on race than anything. Mm -hmm. uh, the you know, white Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism, uh, which which I to me um, describes a uh, a group that is accustomed to a dominant culture in the United States. Um, yeah. They don't want it to change, and they don't. And and yet, there's more diversity now than ever. Now more than ever, uh, you know. Finally, those who are considered in the classification of white are actually no longer a majority. Um, that changed in the, in recent years. Um, I mean, that's a real thing. So that's that's you know, from a psychological point of view and a conscious point of view, that's that's threatening. That's scary mm. uh, to know that you're going to have to welcome uh, people with different backgrounds, different skin colors, different languages uh, into this country, which actually draws its strength from democracy and diversity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, different religions as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is, um, a lot of it is fear-based. A lot of it is some of the very strange poverty, I think, that goes on in the United States. In particular, there's quite a divide between mm. uh, rural America and urban America. And, you know, you, you might have a state like Texas that you think is really super conservative. And certainly by the, you know, the, the talk from their governor, yeah. they are. It's a red but, state, but but look at how Houston voted. Look how Dallas voted. It's it's mm -hmm. blue, you know. They've got pockets of blue in the midst of the red. Yeah, and I think too, there's been a big shift um, to uh, a, a, there's a there's a new kind of um, elite rich person, probably best summed up in the in, in types like Elon Musk. Now he mm -hmm. tends to be more conservative, but if you think of a lot of the Silicon Valley types and all the money involved there, um, it tends to be more more liberal. And, um, I, th I think a lot of those who are voting for Trump are, are, are super frustrated that their way of life has changed. And e even the, even the old school Republicans who used to be the sort of money power elite, they're no longer, they no longer have that either. So mm -hmm. it's kind of weird. People who used to be Democrat, like the working class are now voting Republican. Yeah. There's been a massive paradigm shift. Technologically savvy, more, more new rich elite. Mm -hmm voting uh voting democrat so i think i think it's just uh it, it's very much a uh it's not just a race issue it's a class issue it's how wealth is distributed issue um and i think i i sometimes wish that we would look at it as well from a class point of view at least more so than we have simply because that's really you know one of the biggest questions i mean even, even where i am here in grand rapids you know i've i wound up being a white guy working for a well-known publisher in a relatively affluent white neighborhood. Yeah. What are the odds? <laughs> it doesn't. And, and Grand Rapids is such a size that it only takes me, uh, you know, minutes to cross over this one street where suddenly it's a very, very different world. And, mm -hmm. and 
and the differences are uh, really Stark. quite shocking to tell you yeah. the truth. Yeah. Uh, they're quite striking. And, and it just, it, I mean, I live actually not far from where Betsy DeVos lives. Oh, and the BFFs with Betsy. Not, no, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> uh, she's got her own compound with a gate and a, oh, and a camera, you yeah, know, mega billionaire, isn't she? Yeah. 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 You're not um, getting invited to her tea parties, I suppose, David. No, no, no. Pool parties is more like it. They've got oh, right. people over there. They also have a helicopter. Yeah. And I've never oh, of course that. they do. <laughs> yeah. But, Being Amway fortune. Speaking of yeah, exactly. wacky thoughts, yeah. you know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm two miles away from where the Amway headquarters in Ada, in Ada Michigan. Oh. Uh, but it, it's just, it's just striking to me how, you know, the, the money that they have, the things that they could do to flip you know, flip mm-hmm. things over with regard to the poverty that's just minutes away from their front door. You know, the money that I've seen them invest in certain kinds of things. And I think, man, you could have bought like, you could have bought like five blocks of mm-hmm. more affordable and more modernized housing and given educational opportunities for hundreds of people. And I, you know, who am I to sort of judge all their charitable work? But it it's pretty clear that you know, like a lot of evangelicals, we'd much rather invest in saving souls in Africa than mm-hmm. tending to our own neighbors who were descendants of those from Africa, yeah. right right in our own neighborhoods. Well, yeah. And like you say, you look at the dark money that flows into some of these Christian right organizations. I mean, the DeVos family, the Ulines, uh, the Greens who own Hobby Lobby, and of course, the yeah. Museum of the Bible, they're giving to untold millions into organizations like Moms for Liberty. I mean, going back to what you were saying about wanting to keep things the way they are. I mean, this is a big agenda that I've been seeing over here, and that is this this drive to ban books in public libraries. And that's a massive hot topic right now, isn't it? And so people like the DeVos family and others are funding these sort of drive. That's what they're putting their money into is right. these, these Christian right organizations that are <laughs> trying to ban books from libraries. You know, and it's funny, I actually know, I, I've actually, you, you mentioned... I mean, I've actually met people who have a lot of money and mm-hmm. um, they don't, they're not necessarily, and who are giving a lot of money to charities like this, they're not necessarily theologians themselves. They don't necessarily understand, um, you know, what it is they're giving money to or how to make their decisions. They're actually people with just a lot of money that they don't know what to do with, mm-hmm. which yeah. is another thing too. It's sort of like, why are CEOs paid so much money? It's like, that's yeah. just... There's, there's nobody should be paid that much money. Nobody should make that much money. hundreds assigned what the average employee in their companies makes, isn't it? Just ludicrous. Yeah. I'm not even, I'm not even speaking like from a particular, uh, you know, economic philosophy right now. I'm just speaking from everyday experience. I've seen, I've, I've been in the corporate world enough, and I've seen the paychecks, of that I got and that some of my supervisors got, and I thought, what do you even do with all that money? You don't even, you don't <laughs> need it all to, to live. Do you really need it? Yeah. Especially yeah. going along with the teachings of Jesus, you know, about don't worry about your daily bread and all that. God will provide for you. It's like a vow of poverty sort of thing. Yeah. And something about that? just giving it away is not a good enough rationalization. Yeah. Give to the, yeah, give, sell, sell everything you have, give it, you know, give it to the poor. Well, what I mean is, no one's doing that. If you're, if you're that rich, but you justify it by saying, why well, I, I support these amazing foundations and so on, right. and that work wouldn't go on if I wasn't funding it. I, I don't know if that's, that's a full enough mm-hmm. explanation. Yeah, but it doesn't look good on paper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I understand that money, you know, people will get windfalls. There will be a lot of money involved sometimes. And then what do you do with that money? Okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. 
But the way we've routinized and standardized, even like CEO pay in the United States or even whatever, you know, people who are really high, high paid, um, that's that's the part that just still kind of just from a from a very ground level. I just, I, you know, I had employees in publishing and I saw how much money they made and I saw what their, I saw what their home life was like and the, the quality of the cars they drove and, you know, the neighborhoods they were able to live in. And I just thought this is, and then I, and then I see who some of the executives above me were mm-hmm. able this is just really weird. Why is this so different? And we're a huge inequality. Yeah, exactly. A Christian yeah. company, quote unquote. Yeah. Surely they should be different, living different. You know, it's ironic. I was just doing a podcast with a good friend of mine, David Johnson, last night. We got to talk about, because earlier you said exercising my ability. So I almost thought you were going to say exercising my spiritual gifts. <laughs> oh. As evangelicals, we would have said that. And we did a whole podcast on spiritual gifts. And we kind of broke down a sermon on YouTube. And we sort of deconstructed it. And I was saying that it's ironic that at the church I was pastor of in Portland, we were actually the last two or three years trying to live consistent with what I, how I read passages like Ephesians 4 and some of the other ones, you know, we're helping people raise up their spiritual gifts and working myself out of a job. That church ended up closing down. And I was dumbfounded by the fact that at the end of it all, I said, but don't you guys realize I, we were trying to live according to the Bible's teachings and you didn't like it. We had to close the church down. So even in that example, Christians aren't necessarily trying to really be consistent with what the pretty clear teachings of Scripture actually say. Right, right, yeah. Hugely ironic. Yeah, it is. It is hugely ironic. Yep. I mean, if I if I could sort of pause and step back for a minute, one of the things I've spent a lot of time thinking about lately is just why we are so obsessed with religion in the United States, in particular. Um. One of the holes in my own education was history of religion, history of of Christianity, and for that matter. Um, and one of the, I just I just read sort of like a primer book on uh, the history of American Protestantism, um, and it talked about how we you know we were a country where um, so many of our ancestors, white ancestors. Um, were people who were leaving European countries because we felt our ancestors felt as though there wasn't religious freedom and mm-hmm. they couldn't practice their their faith, possibly because of um, state controlled religion, mm-hmm. yeah, persecution and all that. Yeah, yeah, the marriage of the crown and the pulpit in European countries, mm-hmm. um, and so. You know, from the very beginning, the cultural DNA in the United States has been a group of religious rebels. Yeah, it's and true. We were founded in a way by fundamentalists mm-hmm. who wanted to practice a certain way. Um, they wanted a theocracy, you might say. Um, but they were also, that was also mixed in with the promise of being in a new land with new resources and new opportunities for economic growth. I think that was part of the promise as well. Sure. And then you mix in slavery with that, and it's just like from a from an emotional, psychological point of view, the the threads that we got started four hundred years ago, four hundred plus years ago in North America. Um, they they are going to take a long time to continue to unravel. Um, 
I, I'm just so fascinated by the Massachusetts Bay Colony, for example. Yeah, it's a good case study, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. The fascinating yeah. one. And I'm starting, there was Anne Hutchinson on one side, she's a woman, mm-hmm. and there was the Massachusetts Bay Colony governor, and I'm going to get his name mixed up with someone else. Was it Winthrop? Winthrop, thank you. John Winthrop. Good yeah, job. yeah, good. <laughs> and I have a gold star for my history test. <laughs> Winthrop is someone who's like, okay, let's go create this city on a hill mm-hmm. in in New England um, and and be closer to God, so to speak, get away from the controlling governmental religion mm-hmm. of, of Europe. And then Anne, Hutching, Anne Hutchinson comes along and she's leading prayer meetings, grassroots prayer meetings in her home mm-hmm. and uh, subverting his authority. And yeah. she's called to a sort of a tribunal where she yeah. stripped her role in the community and, and asked to leave, I believe. Yeah, she was banished. Yeah, she but was banished. who was to say that she what she was doing wasn't right? Right. There, there, right. Like you said, there's no controls then. If you leave the hegemony of European state sponsored right. church, that that's the very thing they were arguing, isn't it? That, that's an aspect of it as well. Yeah. Right. We don't, the, very, the very thing that, that Winthrop was trying to get, get away from in Europe, he was now yep. duplicating it. Yeah. In North same America. model. Yeah. <laughs> but in this case, now you've got this particularly hot mix of, of self-made religious people, like even in Hutchinson for that matter. I'm not going to. I'm not going to try to question her theology or her connection to the divine, but it's 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 very self-made, mm-hmm. which which is exactly what George Winthrop wanted, and yeah. so now you have this like strange dichotomy that continues in the United States about everybody's trying arguing about what religious institutions ought to be. Hence, you have so much church splitting, so mm-hmm. many denominations, so many startup churches that have no accountability. It, it's just this strange free market capitalistic. Christianity in the United States. And that's, you know, that's what we're trying to detach ourselves from psychologically. I'll add one last thing to that. We've almost needed a a, a rigid religious life here because we don't have the weight of history because we left our homeland, so to speak. Mm-hmm. We yeah, left disconnected. Yeah. We, got, we disconnected ourselves. So that rigid religion oppressing others it, it's it's just been. I'm not excusing it in any way. I'm just trying to say that that's that's been um, that's our legacy, and that's what we have to undo. It's true. Yeah. If you were a Catholic up until the, probably the time of the Reformation, one thing you could count on in Europe is that the Church had that hegemony. So every quote unquote heresy, they could literally stamp it out, and they did. They just ruthlessly yeah. stamped it out. So they had that measure of control. They controlled the Bible. They had the Latin Vulgate. They had literally armies at their disposal so they could go in and wipe out the Cathars and other so-called heresies. Whereas, like you say, in America, you couldn't do that. So who's to say that Joseph Smith wasn't right or Anne Hutchinson or any or L. Ron Hubbard or any other right. cult religion, whatever, that was a homegrown American thing, Mary right. Baker, Eddie, any number of them, there was really no right. control. Like you say, it reminds me of Kurt Anderson's book, Fantasyland. I don't know if you've read that, but it's that's basically his argument, isn't it, that um, you know, we, we've created a fantasy land where anything goes and there's no controls. So you can't sit back and complain that it was that it's wrong or heretical. <laughs> I'm just exercising my freedom. The very freedoms you fought for. How ironic. But but to be a normal religious person, normal spiritual person where you are in England, the, the you guys have left a lot of that back, put a lot of it aside. I'm not saying there isn't 
issues and there certainly oh yeah we do have some yeah but but there's you know you're part of secular europe Mm-hmm. Yeah. The church doesn't really have a presence, nothing like what it is in America, certainly not involved in politics. But from a psychological, emotional point of view, is that healthier or, un- or unhealthy? I think it's far healthier than, than it is in America. Yeah. You know, it's a very small uh, minority of evangelicals that try to get involved in parliament and things, but it's nothing like the Christian right in America. You just don't hear it. The Archbishop of Canterbury might make a speech and it might get on the news or something about some topic, but it's nothing like, you know, if it, if it was a Billy Graham type of figure or someone like that in America. Right. Right. Where you have Paula White being summoned to yeah. the White House. And, yeah. Um, you know, you're not, yeah. He, he, he's a political. Exactly. Thing. He's not getting summoned to, to meet with King Charles, you know, and before that Queen Elizabeth, I mean, it might, yeah. they might talk, but that's changed massively. I, I mean, I think that's part of our hope. I mean, I'm, I, is, is how does America move toward a less religiously charged country, less religiously charged identity is really is really what it is. Yeah, can it be done? It doesn't mean you can't be spiritual. It doesn't mean you can't be Christian. Even it it just means that you, uh, um, you know, you you, f- you find other ways of defining who you are, mm-hmm. and aren't caught up in a liter- you know that that require you to do things like read the Bible in a literal way, and a con- self contradictory way for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's true. Well, the good thing is I, I've seen these polls, you know, it seems like in America, as in other countries like Australia, like you say, Great Britain, Europe, as the number of Christians declines at the same time, there's a, another track that's going up, the nuns, as you said before. So the Christianity seems to be in decline numerically in some places, whereas the new generation that's coming on is less likely to have those religious ideals and beliefs. So I do hold out hope for the next couple of generations. Yeah. I would even say that that sort of, you know, the change is happening. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's, I think structurally it's happening in the United States um, faster than people realize. Much of it brought on by uh, the rise of the digital marketplace. Uh, we are all far more segmented than we've ever used to be. Mm-hmm. Which also allows for a lot of independence and allows allows, allows for a lot of craziness at times, uh, but there isn't like this mass culture that we all need to participate in, and I think that's allowed people's identities to come out more. Um, so there's a certain there's a certain freedom in that. Um, I you know I I think it, I think it has to be, and I think we kind of have to get to work on this stuff. Um, you know where I used to work in in religious publishing, uh, the author. Brian McLaren has called it the Christian industrial complex. I don't know if he coined that mm-hmm. phrase or not, but yep. um, I, I worked for the Christian industrial complex. Um, I worked for a company that, uh, you know, was well over $300 million in publishing. Um, though the unit I ran was, was a significant portion of that. Mm-hmm. The amount of resources, uh, the infrastructure there, um, it's why people at a, a Methodist church might be doing a Bethmore Bible study, you know, very different traditions, Bethmore and Methodist mm-hmm. in, in, in many, by many definitions. Uh, but, but because Bethmore gets better marketed, better distribution, bigger print runs, uh, that bigger name, that's what you have. But the world is changing in, in such a way that that's not working as well as it used to. And those companies are not doing as well as they used to. Even publishers in general, Christian or not, aren't, their business is not as easy as it once was. 
Um, so I think I hold out a lot of hope that, um, you know, continued innovation and change um, has creates at least pockets of opportunity for us to to start living in the world in different ways. Um, and we've got to get to work because, goodness, you know, what's happening with our planet? Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening even with things like like hate crime being on the rise? Um, you know, we, we've got to solve some of these things cult- culturally uh, and we've got to make some progress and we've got to start talking to one another. It's true. I'm, I'm glad we've connected. I'm just looking at the time. I know you've got stuff to do. I do appreciate chatting with you. And I know from what we talked about before we hit record, the kind of books that you're looking to publish and you are publishing, they are helping people, as you said, to connect with that sort of community of ex-evangelicals. So you're doing the right thing for sure. So how can people find you if they wanted to get a hold of you on social media? What's the best place to do it? Yeah, thank you. Uh, just go to uh, my publishing website, lakedrivebooks.com, lakedrivebooks.com. Uh, it's also at Lake Drive Books on any social media platform or most of them. Um, and check out the books there. You can learn more about me there when you when you click on the about page and my literary agenting work. And definitely though, check out the authors. Got some amazing books that are coming out, amazing stories that need to be told and uh, mm. having a blast. It's hard work, but I'm having a blast. <laughs> hard work, but worth it. I was just yeah. going to say before I let you go, if you're interested, I'd love to continue the conversation. Uh, once a month, we do what I call it's a mind shift Zoom call with a group of people. And we've got an open slot in October and November. If you're interested in coming back on and, and being a guest, I would love to have you. We've got the last Sunday of October and then the last Sunday of November. So I might be able to shoot you some dates if you're interested in coming back. I'd love to have a chat with a group of people. Yeah, sure. So let me let me tell me more about it. Yeah. Okay. I'll do that. I'll, I'll send you some emails, send you some information, okay. and hopefully we can maybe connect up again and I'll have you meet some of the people in our closed group and we just have a great conversation for about an hour on the last Sunday of the month. So it's really good. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, David. I've really enjoyed meeting you. And again, thank you to Janice Selby for introducing us. And I'm sure we'll touch base again. Sounds good. Thank you. Great to be here.